Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke's Gospel? We're picking up our studies in Luke, where we left off in June. So, Luke chapter 23, and we'll read from verse 44. Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had, had, what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Amen. So we're picking up our studies in the Gospel of Luke. And if you can remember back to June, we were focusing in on the crucifixion of Jesus and in particular, the death of Jesus. And we had been doing that by zooming in on the three cries that Jesus made from the cross as recorded for us by Luke. And we looked at the first two, the first one there in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then his words to the dying thief in verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this morning we come to the last and final cry, as recorded by Luke, but also of the seven statements that were made uh, by Jesus from the cross. It's recorded for us there in verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I want you to notice three things this morning. The meaning of the cry, the uniqueness of the cry, and the lessons from the cry. So first of all then, this morning, the meaning of the cry. What does this cry mean? What did Jesus mean? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does that tell us about the work of Jesus on the cross? Well, it tells us three things. First of all, it tells us that the sufferings of Christ were finished. Do you notice the words, into your hands? Your hands. Now, those are significant words. For more than 12 uh, ours, Christ had been in the hands of men. Back in Matthew 17 and verse 22, Jesus had warned his disciples that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands, into the hands of sinful men. In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, as the hour of crucifixion approached, Jesus said, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He had delivered himself into the hands of sinners. Peter in Acts chapter 2 calls those hands wicked hands. And they crucified him. Though with those hands, they beat him. They stripped him. They pushed that crown of thorns upon him and they led him to the cross. With those same hands, they had hammered nails into his uh, hands, and they had hoisted that crossbeam onto the perpendicular pole, and then with those same hands hammered his feet to the cross. No wonder Peter calls them wicked hands. 
Voluntarily, the Savior delivered himself into the hands of sinners. And now that his suffering was complete, he commits his soul into the hands of his heavenly Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What a marvelous contrast. Never again would he suffer at the hands of men. Never again would he be at the mercy of men. Never again would he be humiliated because of men. Into the hands, the hands of his loving heavenly Father, he commits himself to the Father who would raise him from the dead, a Father who would exalt him above all principalities and powers, a Father who would make his enemies his footstool, and a Father who would bring him back in great glory to the earth once again. Into your hands, the Father's hands, he commits his spirit. He was no longer in the hands of wicked men. He was in the hands of his heavenly Father. His sufferings were finished. Secondly, in that statement, you see, his fellowship was restored. Notice the first word of that statement, Father. When was that word last upon his lips? Do you remember the first recorded cry from the cross there in verse 34? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus lived his life in uh, a conscious uh, fellowship with his Father. Do you remember the very first recorded statement ever spoken or recorded for us in the Gospels is uh, to Mary when he says, don't you know, I, I must be about my Father's business. In the Sermon on the Mount, 15 times he addresses God as Father. He lived his life in the closest um, uh, possible communion with his Father. And even when they spat on him, paraded him through the streets and crucified him, still he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But something terrible happened. For three hours from 12 noon to three in the afternoon, his suffering at the hands of men was superseded to his, uh, to suffering at the hands of God. And during those three hours, Jesus entered the realm of what the Bible calls outer darkness. When God led our sin on him, and because our sin was led on him, he withdrew from him. So in the seven cries of Jesus from the cross, you have three directed uh, 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 to God. So, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then, finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But the one in the middle is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course, his faith in his Father was intact because he, he still calls him, my God, my God. There's a, there's a double grip of faith upon his Father. But that sense of the fatherhood of God, that intimacy with His Father at that particular moment was broken. 
But now, when the darkness dissolves, that fellowship is restored, and once more he cries, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. His, his work is finished. His fellowship is restored. And that's a wonderful thing. A very precious thing. So the meaning of the cry, his sufferings were finished, his fellowship was restored, and his work was completed. As I said, Jesus spoke seven times from the cross when you put the gospel records together. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the dying thief, today you will be with me in paradise. To Mary, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. My seven to the Jews was the number of perfection. It was the number of completion. So when Jewish people heard that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross, they would understand that in some way those words were completed, that his work was completed. But also to the Jew, um, seven was significant because of rest. You remember at creation, God rested on the seventh day of creation. Genesis 2 begins with the words, by the seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, at this moment on the cross, this work of recreation was completed. You'll notice there in verse verse 45 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two symbolizing the finished work of Christ and that we now have access, direct access into the presence of God. The work was finished. And so Jesus enters his rest. The work the Father gave him was completed. Now, of course, the work of recreation was much more difficult than the work of creation. We're told in Psalm 33 that Jesus spoke in creation happened. That he said, let there be, and creation sprang into life. But to recreate, to redeem, words were not enough. That recreation had to be accomplished through the perfect life of obedience of the Lord Jesus and his substitutionary death upon the cross. Recreation. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but recreation was costlier than creation itself. One writer says it would have been cheaper for God to make new creatures than to recreate old ones. Could have wiped out this world and started afresh with a new creation. But because of His love for us, He decided to recreate the old. And the price of that recreation was his blood. And when that work was finished, Jesus commended himself into the hands of his Father that he might rest after accomplishing the world's redemption. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gave himself to the Father's care. His work was accomplished. And the Father raised him 
uh, and he ascended into glory and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in high. The work was completed and he rested. Seven statements. He rested from the work of recreation. The meaning of the cry. The second thing I want you to notice then is the uniqueness of the cry. Now this statement has encouraged many, particularly the martyrs in the face of death and uh, and. Many of them repeated this statement in the hour of their death. When I was away, I read the biography of Jan Hus, uh, the Czech reformer, who uh, was before Luther, before the Reformation, and was put to death because of his uh, radical uh, ideas, burnt at the stake, and he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Polycarp, Bernard of Clairvaux, all prayed this prayer. Indeed, those who weren't martyred, like Martin Luther, prayed this prayer too. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But in saying all of that, it's important for us to understand the uniqueness of this cry. This word commit is a word worthy of notice. The authorized version uh, renders it commend into your hands. I commend my spirit. And the word means to lay down or dismiss. In other words, the precise moment of our Lord's death was under his control. He dismissed his spirit. He laid down his life voluntarily. It was his decision. It was under his authority and under his control. Jesus, we're told, died after six hours of crucifixion. And that was very highly unusual. Men could hang on a cross for up to ten days, but Jesus died only after six hours. In fact, Mark tells us, Mark 15, that Pilate was surprised to hear that he already had died and that he sent for the centurion to, to make sure that the facts were true. Do you remember when the soldiers came to break the legs of those who were hanging on the cross so that the, the body would collapse, put pressure on the, the lungs so that the individual crucified wouldn't be hanging on uh, the Sabbath, that they came and discovered Jesus was already dead, and they were surprised at that. Now, that was unusual. It was unexpected. It was strange. People did not die that quickly. And here's the reason. That Jesus was in perfect control, even of the time of his death, and he dismissed his spirit. It's interesting that although Stephen echoed these words when he was stoned, they're not exactly the same. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There's a difference. Stephen was being killed. He would die at the hands of his enemies, but he had no power to decide when he would actually uh, die. He was, in effect, praying, the moment of my death, Lord, receive my spirit. But our Lord himself was handing over his life. He was dismissing his spirit. He was unique in that respect. Notice 2, verse 46 tells us that he cried out in a loud voice. Did you notice that? He cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, dying men usually don't cry out in a loud voice. 
Their last words are spoken in weakness. But Jesus cries out and he dismisses his spirit. He was in perfect control of the moment of his death. In fact, so profound was that um, that, uh, that these words that they had a, a, a major impact upon the centurion. Look at verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. Now, this is a pagan, a, a pagan Roman soldier. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent, or certainly this man was a righteous man. Mark is much more pacific, and he tells us in Mark 15 and verse 39, and when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus, listen to this, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Here was the man who ordered Jesus to be stripped, who ordered that he would be beaten, who probably himself pushed the crown of thorns upon his head. And he sees something in the words of Jesus that has a major impact upon him, so much so that he praises God, he confesses his purity, and he declares his deity. This man was a righteous man, and surely, he says, this man was the Son of God. Jesus was in perfect control of the time of his death. He called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, we need to understand that his death was unique in that sense, that he determined the moment of his death. We need to understand that we have no such control. It is God who fixes the boundaries of our lives. The Bible says it is appointed on to man once to die and after death the judgment, and that's an appointment we have to keep. He fixes the boundaries of our life. Now listen, if, if nothing is more certain in this life than death, and nothing is more uncertain than the time of dying, does it not make sense to pray for death? Um, or does it not make sense to prepare for death? I was struck this, this week, these last few weeks, this Probably my closest friend, a Presbyterian minister, just retired, 67, went in to make his wife a cup of tea, and she came uh, into the kitchen to see what was keeping him, and he had an aneurysm, and eight hours later, he died. Suddenly, unexpectedly. Thinking of Hugh Wilkerson. Two weeks ago, he was out doing his daily walk and eyes with the Lord in glory. Death comes to us all and sometimes it comes in an unexpected way and at an unexpected time. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? Because death will come. The third thing I want you to notice then is the lessons from the cry. The meaning of the cry, the uniqueness of the cry, the lessons from this cry. Although this cry from the cross was unique, what lessons can we learn, can we derive from this statement of Jesus? 
reading recently about a young girl who grew up in a liberal progressive home and uh, her parents were open-minded and uh, encouraged her to experiment in whatever she liked. They had an open marriage and they encouraged her to have the same attitude. And the girl, when she was in her first year at university, was involved in a fatal car accident. And her mother sat beside her bed as her life was ebbing away. And the girl in her dying moments turned to her mother and said, Mother, you taught me everything. You taught me how to smoke weed. You told me, taught me how to mix drinks. You taught me all about safe sex. You uh, showed me how to access abortion. You told me all about contraception. But you never taught me how to die. And in her dying moment, she says, Mom, teach me how to die, for I'm dying. Are you prepared for for what, after all, is inevitable? How can we face death confidently? From these words of Jesus, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I want you to notice three things. To face death confidently, you must know God as your Father. Jesus said in his dying moments, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His confidence concerning death was rooted in his relationship with his Father. Now, of course, we cannot know God as Father in exactly the same way that Jesus knew him as Father. He was uniquely, eternally, supremely the Son of God. But the Bible would tell us that each of us can know God in this personal, intimate way as Father. John 1 and verse 12, But as many as received him, to them give he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That by believing in Jesus, that by believing in his name, I become a child of God. I'm brought into the family of God and he becomes my father. I'm adopted into his family. You know, it's very fashionable now to talk about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that those who are truly converted, that they and they only are the children of God, that His Spirit is sent into their hearts, and by that Spirit they cry, Abba, Father. Have you received Him? But as many as received Him, to them give He the right to become the children of God. Do you know Him as your Father? Can you sincerely pray, Our Father who is in heaven, To die confidently, you need to know God as your Father. You must know God as your Father. Secondly, you must know heaven as your future. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We we can die confidently knowing if we know that our spirits immediately pass into the hands, into the home, into the house of the Heavenly Father. Jesus knew his soul was going to be received by the Father at the very moment of his death. His body, of course, was placed in the tomb, waiting for the resurrection on the third day. 
But while his body was in the tomb, his spirit was in the hands of his heavenly Father. And it's exactly the same for us, for the individual who knows God as their Father. At the point of death, the spirit, the soul departs to be with God, to be with Christ. Our bodies are laid in the ground, waiting a future resurrection. And at that time, body and soul will be resurrected, reunited, and body and soul together will inherit the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Death for the Christian is being absent from the body and present with the Lord. I was telling the family yesterday, about this in, in, I don't know what it's like in Balamina, but in, in, in Balamani, it was, it was the, a very common practice that they would take even children in to view the body of uh, a loved one that had, uh, had died. And, uh, these three children were taken up to see their grandmother in the upstairs room and they came down really distressed, really heartbroken. And I said to them, I said, did you see your granny? And they nodded, didn't speak, just nodded. And I said, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You just saw the body in which your granny used to live. Your, your granny is absent from the body and, and present with the Lord. This makes death a promotion, not a tragedy. And that's why when a loved one dies in Christ, we do not grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. Because we have hope. We know that they're forever with the Lord. Franz Havner, the Baptist preacher, when his wife died, somebody came and said to him, I, I believe you've lost your wife. He says, no, I haven't. I know exactly where she is. I know exactly where she is. Adonai Judson, the famous missionary to Burma, he says... Uh, when I die, it will be like a child running from school, full of excitement, running home. Home with the Lord. Are you ready to die? Do you have that confidence? If I was to bury you this week, could I bury you in sure and certain hope? in sure and certain hope of the re resurrection. You know that the last breath that you draw on this earth or the last flutter of your heart, that when that occurs, you will be in the hands of a heavenly Father. To die confidently, you must know God as your Father. You must know heaven as your future. And you must know that your work on earth is finished. We can die confidently and comfortably knowing that our work uh, is, is completed. Did, did you notice that we're told that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, that the work of Christ, that veil, when you compare the gospel accounts, that veil was torn when Jesus said, it is finished. The work of redemption was completed and the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the Father sent Jesus into the world to do a work. And when that work was finished, he committed his hands 
put his soul and spirit into the hands of a heavenly father. Jesus carefully and diligently followed the father's plans. He was able to say in John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. On another occasion, he said, I always do those things that please him in John 8. Now, the same is true of us. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. That's why the 24 elders in Revelation, when they're, they receive that crown, they don't put that crown on their head. They take that crown and they throw it at the feet and cry out, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Because all glory goes to Him, because salvation from beginning to end is grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, this not of yourselves, but the gift of God, so that no one can boast. But immediately after that, Ephesians 2 and verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared for us in advance to do. Prepared for us in advance to do. That, that He has saved us by grace, but He has works for us to do. He has a plan for us to fulfill. He's a service for us to render. And we can die confidently knowing that our work is finished, that we have done uh, what He has asked us to do, that we have been faithful to Him and loyal to Him and uh, sought to live for Him, to face death confidently. You need to know that your work is finished. When we were young people in the old youth praise book, there was a song, and I remember just being converted at that time, and it had major impact upon me. Is He satisfied? Is he satisfied? Is he satisfied with me if this day should be the end and eternity begin? Is he satisfied with me? Do you know that scene in Schindler's List where when uh, the Nazis are defeated and Schindler comes out of the factory and all the Jews are gathered around him and he says, he says these uh, sobering words, he says, I could have done more. I could have done more. And when the wood, hay, and stubble is all burnt up, what, what will be left? To die confidently. You need to die faithfully, knowing that your work on earth is finished. So to die confidently, you must know God as your Father. Do you know Him? You know, you must know heaven as your future. Are you sure by grace that's where you're going. And you must know the work, your work on earth is finished. Amen.